Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Well, good evening, Donald. Good to see you back on the History of Networking. This is becoming historical. How's it going? This is like, I don't know, like, yeah, it's not like a hundred of these or something we've done now. It's kind of crazy. I have to go look and count. Is this, is this actually a hundred? I don't know. I have to look, but it's a lot. We can like, we can have like little streamers and. <laughs> we've done a hundred of these. I don't know. Yeah. When we get to a hundred, we'll do that. Nobody will see us do it, but we'll put little things up next to the mic and, you know, like crackers or whatever. So tonight we have with us, or this evening we have with us, Mark Nottingham, who it's not evening for him. So Mark, how are you this morning? I'm pretty good. Thanks. I've had my coffee. You've had your coffee. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you get when the world is round. Indeed. <laughs> it still surprises some people. It does. I mean, time zones would be so much simpler if the world was really flat. Just, just say it. <laughs> I hear you. What, what most people don't get is that the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere, uh, daylight savings goes in different directions. And so you can imagine it just kind of twisting in different directions. So it's a two-hour offset, not a one-hour offset. Uh, when daylight and, and that just messes everybody up twice a year. Uh, I'm telling you, flat earthers, man. <laughs> yeah, they're onto something. Yeah, I hear you. They're onto something about meeting times. So, Mark, so let's begin and talk about hypertext transfer protocol um, and just back up and talk a little bit about how that came into being and maybe part of the role you played in, in that coming out. Sure. Um, so, HTTP has been around for a long time. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee uh, came up with it when he invented the web way back in the late 80s and you know early 90s. And uh, I was not involved in that, obviously. Um, I was still in high school in 1989, just graduating. Um, and I started using the web in the early 90s uh, when it came out. I was on Unix and you know VMS and remember FTP and Gopher is kind of state of the art. And then this web thing came out, it was really cool. Um, and then uh, uh, later down the road, I got involved in, I moved to, to Australia where I live now, I'm originally American. And I got involved in web caching a lot because in Australia, the internet's really slow for some reason. And caching helps speed up, uh, bring those uh, American sites closer. And so I worked for ISPs and universities and uh, web caching kept on coming up. And as I got involved in that, uh, I got more and more interested in the higher level concerns, which is the standards. So I started getting involved uh, directly in HTTP, I'd say the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, when I went to work for Akamai, which is a content delivery network. And I started working on standards. And so we started working on uh, figuring out what role CDNs and things like that play in, in, in web standards. And then... Uh, uh, Later on, probably I think 2005, 2006, we came to a place where the HTTP specifications were 
they were kind of rotting. They weren't being maintained. And so we had uh, a group of people come together and decide it'd be great if we could revise those specifications. And so we, we formed a group in the H, in the IETF called HTTPBIS, the HTTP Working Group, as we call it now, which is responsible for the HTTP specifications. So that's really where I come in. I did some standards work around HTTP before that, but it wasn't really around the core. Um, so yeah, you have this this period where where Tim launched the web uh, back in the early '90s, and there was a, a period of really rapid evolution uh, where HTTP 0.9 was the original, then 1.0 came out, and that was just kind of tacking some things on and trying to fix it up, uh, and and to switch it to a more mime-like model where it was uh, uh, based on on a protocol that people could understand a little bit more, and then HTTP 1.1 they started working on that because it's you know, the web was exploding. They needed to handle a, a lot more load. They needed to reuse connections, so persistent connections. They needed the host header so you could have more than one, you know, uh, domain name on an IP address, that sort of thing. Um, and, and there was a whole process for that. There was a an ITF working group for that, the first HTTP working group that, that happened. Uh, and that, that was a whole bunch of people like uh, Larry Macinter, Roy Fielding, obviously, Henrik Fristick nielsen uh, Jim Geddes, uh, Jeff Mogul, a whole bunch of people uh, and you see a bunch of the names on the HTTP 1.1 specs on RFC 2616 and 2068. Um, but then after, after that shift, that community started looking at what does uh, uh, the next version of HTTP look like and, and in, in mostly in the W3C and, and with a little bit of ITF attention as well, they had uh, this thing called HTTP NG, which they thought they would uh, come up with the next generation of the protocol. Uh, but uh, my understanding, and again, I wasn't really there for that. I kind of was on the edges of this community at the time. Uh, the implementers were exhausted. They they had just finished this huge effort on HTTP 1.1. There wasn't a lot of interest in starting a whole new protocol as well. And so HTTP NG just kind of went off and, and, and lost developer momentum and, and died off on the side. Uh, and, and so then in the early 2000s, there was this period where, you know, HTTP still explosive use, you know, arguably biggest application protocol on the internet, uh, but it wasn't really being developed or maintained. And so you, you have still, if you look inside of Firefox source code or Chrome source code or, or the server source code like Apache, you, you find these places where these, re these really weird workarounds where, you know, a particular number of bytes in the headers causes a bug. And therefore, if, if the headers you send have this many bytes, you pad it with an extra bit of bytes. Uh, to work around that behavior, and that's because the implementers weren't talking to each other anymore. Uh, there was there was you know, interoperability was workaround. It wasn't discussion in a community, and, and so that got worse and worse. And that's one of the reasons we decided to revive the HTTP working group to come up with this new expression of of, of the the specifications. Um, and, and so that effort started in I think 2006. And it was about, you know, just writing down the specs in an easier to understand way, incorporating errata, trying to iron it out so that we had better interoperability. And that was really just uh, primarily Julian Reschke uh, in Germany and Roy Fielding, one of the original authors uh, of HTTP. And, and of course, uh, uh, he's probably the most well known for his REST dissert uh, his dissertation, uh, which includes REST. But... Uh, and, and so they worked on that, and I helped them out. I was the chair of the working group, and I also helped on the caching document. Uh, what we found, however, was that 
not only were we revising the documents, we were also trying to rebuild the HTTP community to get the implementers to come back and start talking to each other. And that happened more and more, and we started doing extension documents, uh, you know, new HTTP headers and things like that. And and that's kind of where we're at now. Um, you know, we've I've been chairing the group, and we've had the group around since it's it's been 15 years now, I guess. So it's a it's a kind of a long live community effort uh, where you know we, we've been able to maintain this really important protocol uh, for the community and try and extend its lifetime. Uh, I, personally, I feel like if if we didn't do that, then another protocol would come along, you know, whatever it is, and supplant HTTP and replace it. And 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 if we don't maintain the protocol, that's probably the right thing to happen. But if we maintain the protocol and evolve it to make sure that it still meets people's needs. Then I think it, it has you know it, it can provide a lot of value and retain a lot of value that people a lot of the, all the work that people have put into it. It's interesting that you said that the protocol was degenerating because we don't think of standards that way, right? We think of standards as being something that are stuck out there and they're permanent and it's just it just works the way it works. But it is this implementation thing, isn't it? Where if you're not actually updating the standards, then the implementations do just start to not people don't talk to one another the standards bodies aren't working the way they should because people aren't talking to one another and therefore you end up with these weird well I saw this and I there was a crash so I had to go back and look at something and make some changes in my code and I think that's something people miss about these processes is that they all I hear all the time people well, just abandon the ITF we don't really care we don't need standards we can just use open source as our standard but all of these implementations are open source aren't they or most of them yes most of them, yeah, and and it, it, yeah, it's one of the fascinating things about it that you know you can never write down the specification well enough. There are always going to be ambiguities and, and corner cases that you don't think about ahead of time. Uh, there are certainly a lot of ways you can reduce that, but there, there's always places where interoperability suffers. And so if you just leave the standard out there, then that will you know eventually become an issue. And and you see interoperability problems and security problems. I think our conception of security on the internet has changed pretty drastically over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, especially after 2013. So it, it's it's something that you need to put continuing effort into. I think a successful protocol needs to have a community around it. Uh, and another factor is, is that HTTP, there are so many different implementations of it. It's not like TCP or, or another, you know, the, the low, lower layer protocols where there are relatively few implementations. And so communication amongst those implementers isn't such a big deal. You sometimes have a really dominant implementation and it sets the standard for everyone else effectively, or you have just a, a tight-knit community. But when you have a really diverse protocol like HTTP, it becomes much more difficult to maintain that, that, that kind of cohesion. Um, you know, we have a couple of major servers, we have a couple of major browsers, and that helps a lot. But some parts of HTTP, especially around metadata, around the headers and things, they bleed into applications. And that becomes much more difficult to manage because there's so many more applications. Um, and then, you know, the extreme of that is, is a protocol or, or a format like HTML, where, you know, there are so many HTML authors in the world, they have to be really defensive in how they specify it. It's interesting also that you said that there are a lot of HTTP implementations as opposed to TCP. And people may not realize that because you think TCP is in everything. I mean, everything you have has TCP implementation in it. So there must be a thousand implementations, right? But how many really are there? Would you say 
That's a great question. Uh, I can ask some of my colleagues. Personally, I'd, I'd say, you know, there are many variants of the implementation there, but there are a lot of very common roots. You know, there are a lot of, you start with BSD, you start with whatever, and then you have some forks, but they have a lot of common heritage. Windows is probably the other major branch in, in their libraries. Whereas with HTTP, at least with 1.1, it's simple enough where a developer can go and put together a, a simple implementation with a few lines of code. A complete implementation's you know, another uh, order of magnitude of complexity, but it's still possible for a single developer to say, okay, I'm going to write an HTTP implementation because it's the right thing to do here. Uh, Server-side, client-side, whatever. Uh, most people don't write their own TCP implementations, although I definitely know there are exceptions to that. TCP is actually a lot more complicated with the windowing, and then you have the, you have, you have to choose how you're going to do your windowing, whether it's going to be Reno or, you know, whatever it's going to be. You have all these different options, and you've got to interoperate with everybody else's options for windowing. And I think that's probably the congestion control is the part that really drives people nuts. But then you also have push, right? You The application can say push right now, and that's actually not simple to do necessarily, <laughs> you know, to take your buffer and put it on the wire. Um, so, yeah. So, it's also, the community being as important as the spec, I think, is something that could really be a takeaway from this for people who are listening to say, you know, I just thought that we just built this stuff and it sits out there and the source code is out there and it's it's really not that way. It's it's The community has to continue. Or like you said, you need to develop a new protocol and start over because what are you going to do, right? So HTTP, an interesting point here that people may not realize is that we think of HTTP as being, uh, we kind of intertwine it in our minds with HTML, don't we? And it's really not. It's not the same thing. It's They're actually completely separate things. I, I, I have trouble with that because I don't think of that. That's not obvious to me at all, but I know that a lot of people do kind of blur the two. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm specialized. So, yeah. It's the same thing with, with NetConf and Yang, essentially. Right. I think, yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, they, they the abstractions underneath of them, you know, if you look at it from a stack viewpoint, they just assume that it's just down there and they can depend on it. And they don't really think about its relationship to other things very much. And so for me, when I think about, you know, for a long time, when I thought about the network, it was just like, oh, TCP, it's down there. I get in-order reliable streams, no complications, we're done. But when you dig into it, you start to unravel a lot there. And that's, you know, what eventually happened that led to HTTP2 and then now HTTP3 in terms of how we use the underlying network and, and, and the assumptions you make about the stack beneath you. Let's talk about that a little bit because a lot of people might ask, like, why not just run directly on top of TCP? Like, why do we even need this intermediate layer? So what are some of the things that drove the 1.1 to 2 to 3? Like, what are some of the things that happened there that caused you to think, well, we really need to add this or that? So HTTP, you know, 1.1 was around for a long time, you know, first specified in 95, 96, and then we had a couple of revisions, but it was very stable. And then, you know, we went through the HTTPNG process and the outcome of that was people realized that there could be a more efficient layering of, of the semantics of HTTP on top of TCP, but we just didn't have the impetus for it. And in fact, I think I went and gave a talk about, you know, kind of the status of HTTP at a couple of places, including like Google and Bell Labs in around, I want to say 2008 or so, saying, you know, we're not going to make any changes to HTTP 1.1. It's unthinkable to have a new protocol. And then only probably a few months later, uh, we started talking about HTTP 2. 
You know, Google came up with Speedy. Uh, Mike Belshi and Roberto Payon at at Google had collaborated internally to, to you know, uh, Mike worked on Chrome, the browser, and, and Roberto worked on uh, GFE, which was their server at the time for for you know, Google front end for all their serving all their traffic, and and they identified that you know something that I think was well known in the community that having TCP uh, or having HTTP use TCP in the way it did, where you send a request and you, then you get a response, and you can't use that connection for anything else until you get that response is really inefficient. And, and it causes browsers to open multiple connections because, you know, most web pages you're downloading 40 or 50 or maybe even hundreds of different resources. And so, you know, you, you can't open a single connection for each of those things to do it all in parallel because then you're, you're – creating a mess for congestion control. You know, you're, you're probably going to get, you know, slam yourself with a bunch of different uh, uh, packets from all these different connections. That was actually a major innovation in browsers way, way back. I remember when that happened, that people would say, well, this browser can now open multiple TCP streams to download in parallel. And it's so much faster when you do that. But then you have all those TCP sessions. And if anybody knows much about the way networks work, there, you, there you're going to run into global TCP synchronization, which actually backed into having problems with the way that that um, quality of service was happening in the internet and caused the entire solution to be proposed for weighted red. So it's like this cascading thing of leaky abstractions that are running through the internet. And you think about how a web page is loaded, it's almost like a perfect storm. You know, I go and get one bit of HTML and it tells me to download 20 images if I open 20 connections and download those 20 images, I get imperfect synchronization, this storm of packets coming back at me, I get congestion control problems, and it just lots of retries, and it, it's, it's a mess. So the browsers, you know, kind of eventually settled on about six connections per origin uh, as, as a balance between, you know, performance and, and reliability there. And uh, people try to overcome it by, you know, sharding their content across multiple origins, of course. It's, it's just a mess. And so you have all these perverse incentives. So part of the, the main driver for HTTP2 was let's use one TCP connection to connect to a website. Get around that head of line blocking problem. So I can just multiplex and say, okay, I want to make 40 requests. Fine. Here are 40 requests. Multiplex the 40 responses to me. We're done. And so you have a much more efficient use of the network. Uh, and, and, and that's what HTTP2 does. It switches from a text-based to a binary protocol. Um, and there was a bit of controversy about that. People thought that being binary was more complex. They liked being able to look at the requests and responses, you know, or, or go into Telnet and type in a request. But for a lot of reasons, it was the right way to go, I think. Uh, and and HTTP2 has worked out pretty well for most folks. When you say going from a text-based to a binary-based, so what you mean there is you've actually gone to a binary encoding rather than simply sending the ASCII text codes as a byte stream and getting it back. So it's... You know, in, in HTTP1, it was, it was you have a header section and then you have the body. So the headers are line delimited, you know, key value pairs uh, separated by a colon. And uh, uh, then the response is, you know, much the same. And you have a status line on the top of the response. Um, and in HTTP2, um, it's a framed protocol. So you have these these frame types and the headers has a frame type. And then you have an encoding for uh, the headers themselves. And they happen to be compressed in a very domain-specific way. Uh, and then you have the body chunked up into these data frames. And you can send those. And because... 
In, in HTTP 1, the relationship between that request message and the response message was implicit. I send you a request, and I know that the next response I get is to that request. Uh, whereas in HTTP 2, it's explicit. There's a, a stream identifier. And if they have the same identifier, I know that they're on the same stream. And so now I can have multiple streams in flight, and I don't have to have any ordering issues or, or any dependencies there. So, so that's just solving the multiplexing problem at the application layer. Yes, it's moving a lot of complexity in the application layer, and that was a lot of work. Uh, but we had, uh, I, it was a real privilege to, to to be part of that effort because we had a lot of really talented, smart people who were willing to work together. Uh, sometimes you get in these groups, you get a lot of smart people, and it becomes a bit of a competition. But uh, it was a really mature, uh, professional group of people. Uh, not huge, but but we got a lot of work done pretty quickly. I think we took about two years to standardize HTTP2, uh, which in, in standards is pretty remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, then get it deployed pretty widely. We, uh, I remember, for me, the, the, the turning point was in our, I want to say, third or fourth face-to-face meeting. Uh, we, had, uh, we had done a call and said, okay, we think that this rough draft is ready for preliminary implementation. Let's, anybody who can implement it, please bring an implementation. We'll try and do some interrupt. And so when we had the meeting, and I was thinking, okay, maybe we'll have three. It would be great if we had three implementations show up. And we had ten. And we had interrupt between two of them on the first day. That, to me, was a really good sign. That's the collaboration right there between a community with open source and, and running source and a standards group happening at the same time, in real time, writing the standards interactively with the implementations to make sure that the standards... Yeah, and that's how yeah. we prefer to do it. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, interesting. Yeah. It's interesting that you went through this multiplexing bit because, you know, if you, if you look at John Day's RINA model or RINA model or however you want to say it, you know, he, he posits that there are only four things that networks have to do to transport data. <laughs> and multiplexing is one of the four. And so, in the old HTML or HTTP, sorry, it, there was no multiplexing, really. I mean, there was, but there wasn't. The multiplexing was driven down the stack to TCP, in effect. And what you did, you drew up and created a second multiplexing layer to increase, which increased the complexity in some ways, but it really simplified the situation in many other ways um, because it drew the complexity out of the lower layers. I think we see this a lot in network design and protocol design that you really can't get rid of the complexity. You can just move it from one place to another. <laughs> and, and we did. I, I think the, 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 you know, that brings to mind immediately the problem we're currently wrestling with, which is prioritization. You know, once you have the ability to multiplex and you have multiple things in flight or multiple requests, a sender needs to know how to prioritize what it sends at any one given time. And this has turned out to be a really hard problem, is, is describing, you know, if you've got a client side and a server side, and the client needs certain things at certain times, but what it needs can change over time, uh, describing that in a way that's useful to the server uh, when they're a round trip away from each other is a really hairy problem. Uh, and we, we took, had a go at it in HTTP2. Um, we, we designed a... a fairly complicated tree mechanism that describes a dependency tree. Um, and that didn't get great deployment. It got some, uh, but it, it the complexity was a real burden. And we weren't sure at the time when, when we came up with it that it was the right thing to do, but we made a decision that it was better to go ahead and do it than to try and ponder it for a year or two and try and figure out an optimal solution with a little data. And so when we actually made the decision to do it, 
we made that decision by flipping a coin, which, um, you know, I, I'm a little reluctant to, to, to say that on the record, but uh, it, it's it's well-known lore in the HTTP community that we made a few decisions in the HTTP by flipping a coin. Uh, you know, my from, from my perspective, I was a working group chair. Uh, it was important that everyone in the room was, was bought into that, that that was the, a good way to make a decision. And I think in some ways it's a mark of maturity of the group that everyone recognized it was more important to just move on and make progress than to get things their way or to, or to be proven right. And so everyone said, yeah, it's okay to flip the coin. So we flipped the coin and we moved on. Was it the right outcome? No, but I don't think we had enough information to make the right decision at the time anyway. Yeah, I think that's an important outcome as well, is to say sometimes you just don't have the information you need. So just make a decision and just make it in a way. But I'm assuming that you made it conscious of that and realizing that the protocol had to be designed so that you could go back and make that decision again later. Yeah. And then that's exactly what we're doing right now. We're, we're factoring out prioritization and redesigning another simpler mechanism uh, for HTTP 3 that is being backported to HTTP 2 as well. So I think that's, that's an important lesson as well, is if you have to make that kind of decision, make it, but, but realize you're making that kind of decision and build into what you've built, whatever it is you're making, the ability to go back and make that decision differently in the future from the very beginning, because you know you may not be doing the right thing. So add the flexibility in to change it later. I'm glad you brought up prioritization because prioritization seems to me to be a major problem. I mean, you get, when you when you write a web page, because I've written web pages in HTML straight up before. I use WordPress now, but I may switch off of it eventually. But, um, you know, when I first got into networking, I was building web pages manually using HTML and using Dreamweaver after a while and stuff like that. And you get you start thinking about lazy loading and how you get the page formatted correctly, but get it to load quickly, right? And so that's do you load your images first, or do you tell the the client what size the images are going to be, and you load your text around the images and lazy load the images as the person scrolls, or how do you? I mean, those are those are hard problems to solve. They are, and, and if we get this right. Uh, you know the ideal is is that when you load the page, the browser will tell the server what images are currently in the viewport, and they'll be prioritized. And then, as the the user you know scrolls down or scrolls up, and new images come into view, they'll be reprioritized so they load more quickly. Um, that's that's one of the goals. Or or if I have multiple tabs open to your site and I switch tabs, things will get reprioritized based on what tab is open. And then that becomes a major problem when you get to when you get to controls like Java controls or. Um, I, dare I say it, Flash, because nobody uses Flash anymore. But Flash is the quintessential example, right? It's a blob or a JavaScript, not JavaScript, but a Java, like a Beans or something, that's downloaded as a blob to the website or to the ser- from the server to the client. And you're just like, I don't know. I don't know how to prioritize this because I don't know what should show up. And and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of people using tools like Webpack where they take all the JavaScript or all the CSS and just shove it into one file, which in an HTTP 1.1 world is is better for performance in some ways because you're not making so many requests. But in HTTP 2 or in HTTP 3 with good prioritization, it, it's counterproductive because you have this huge blob that you're downloading when you could be just you know prioritizing the data that's necessary right now. Um, and also for cache eviction, you know, if one part of that data changes, if it's granular, then you can just evict that part of the data from the cache. Um, whereas if it's one big blob, you have to evict the whole thing. Um, 
I, th I think the challenge in all of this is, is that, like you say, the prioritization schemes, as well as the tooling, so that developers can use these things effectively. It's, it's something we don't quite have yet. And actually, that's interesting because that brings up the state optimization surface triad, which I'm always fussing about in the networking world, which is that by hiding the state, which is all these different things inside of a single blob, you've optimized in some situations, but you've de-optimized in other situations. And all you're doing is hiding state is all you're doing. And so sometimes that's better and sometimes that wor that's worse. So you just got to think about it. Um, so was... HTML always XML, or did XML come after HTML? Or so HTML has always been XML-like, though, right? It's never been anything different than an HTML. Uh, yeah, I'm not an HTML expert uh, by any means, but I, I socialize with many of them. My understanding is is that you know, so HTML uh, was originally a variant of SGML, um, and SGML uh, XML is also a variant of XGML, so they kind of have a common root there. And then there was an effort for a long time to make an XML variant of HTML called XHTML, and that failed. And that actually caused a lot of, of fracturing within the politics of the W3C. Uh, it was probably the formative event for the working group. Uh, but now modern HTML is its own distinct language, HTML5, uh, with its own somewhat convoluted parsing rules. But it has a high degree of, of interoperability because the parsing rules are written down so precisely. In, in the HTML5 spec. One other thing that I thought when you were talking through this is, is that what we have here between HTML and HTTP is that we have an interaction between two standards bodies. How does how does that work out? I mean, between W3C and IETF. So it, 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 there's a long relationship between them. And, and for a long time, I was the uh, liaison from the IETF to the W3C. Now I've switched roles so that I'm... Uh, uh, colleague of mine is, is in that role. It's generally collegiate. I think uh, historically we've tried to work on format things re regarding the web in the W3C and protocol things in the ITF, but there are certainly exceptions to that. Uh, but we talk to them on a regular basis. We try and have some cross-participation. It's, uh, um, it's, it's a pretty good relationship. You know, and then there's the, the what working group comes into it as well, and the W3C is seeded control of HTML to the what working group. So we, we talk to them more these days as well. <clears throat> it, it's, it's, it's a complex relationship, but it, it's generally good. And, and then you think about you know, the web overall, you, you have you know, the protocol, which is usually HTTP. You have the format, which is usually you know, the driving format is HTML. Then you have other formats like JavaScript and, and, and CSS. And then you have linking, you have URIs, which kind of tie it all together. And that's really the bedrock of the web. Um, and so URIs, again, are shared between the IETF and the W3C in many ways. Uh, you know, officially the URI spec is at the IETF, the W3C has a lot of uh, input to it. Yeah, which is always off through the DNS system. So then you fall into the DNS parts of it. Exactly. And DNS is, again, at the, at the ITF, yeah. Yeah, right, which, is, which is makes everything a lot more complex. It does. And DNS has become very contentious over the last couple of years uh, for a lot of different reasons. So you mentioned uh, HTTP NG. What was it, and why did it fail? Honestly, I haven't looked at the specs in so long. It it never got fully specified, but it was kind of uh, okay. Let's separate out into a a multiplexing layer and then a semantics layer. Uh, so many of the ideas uh, you can see evidence in HTTP two. It's and, and in HTTP three. It's not like those are 
completely different things. It's just, it, it didn't get that implementer buy-in. You know, it had a lot of people saying this is this would be a good idea, and it was. It just wasn't the right time for it. I think uh, uh, when you look at you know the efficiency issues around how HTTP uses TCP, we didn't really hit the wall until several years later. And then when that impetus came along, that's what drove us. You know, drove first development of Speedy, and then the adoption of HTTP two. So talk a little bit about Speedy because you said it a couple of times. So so what is this about? So that yeah, that's the protocol I mentioned that that Mike and Roberto developed at Google. Um, it was it, it direct precursor to HTTP two. Um, I remember. Uh, Getting a, an email from Mike, who I didn't know at the time, saying, "You know, if you're in, if you're in the Bay Area, we should talk." And so I'm like, "Okay." And so I went and had dinner with him, and he explained what Speedy was to me. And I just remember having a huge smile on my face because I recognized all the different things that he was talking about were things that people knew were fundamental limitations of HTTP, um, but that we didn't have a way to actually move forward a a solution to them in the community. And that by getting a, a big implementer like Chrome on the client side and a big implementer on like like GFE on the server side, we had that impetus. And and, and indeed, as soon as they announced uh, uh, Speedy, you know, as, as a white paper and as an experiment, they they got a huge amount of, of uh, interest in it. Uh, Firefox very quickly implemented uh, a beta version of their own. And it just got momentum. And, and that's sometimes what you need is you need that momentum to start you know, a big change like that. And so it was very much a catalyst. So, so what is it exactly? What exactly is Speedy? Network protocol that has the semantics of HTTP2, sorry, of HTTP, uh, but uh, is binary, uh, has compressed headers, has multiplexing. So direct precursor to, non-standard precursor to HTTP2. Okay. All right, very very interesting. Okay, because I because I know that people aren't going to know the answer to that. So yeah, we, we gave it a different name. We called it HTTP two. I mean, the other comparison you can make is to Quick, which you know was the Google experimental protocol to replace TCP effectively. Um, it was moving that multiplexing layer. You know, it was it very much a direct descendant of Speedy and HTTP two. And that even as they were working on Speedy and then we were working on HTTP two, we knew that there was a headline blocking problem in TCP. Uh, and so it's quick moved that multiplexing layer out of HTTP2 and out of Speedy into the transport, in, into a separate layer. Um, the difference is, is with quick, we didn't rename the protocol when it became an IETF effort. And so that caused a different kind of confusion because are you talking about Google quick or are you talking about IETF quick, which are different things. There's a lot of talk about HTTPS. Um, can you give us a little bit of history there, like what happened and, and why and what's different and things like that so that people have a better understanding of how HTTPS came about or what it's all about? So uh, HTTPS is just uh, HTTP, instead of using TCP directly, using SSL originally and eventually TLS uh, as a substrate to, to secure the connection. So you get confidentiality, you know, it's encrypted, you get authentication of the server side and sometimes of the client side. Uh, you get integrity, uh, those classic security properties. So why not just build it directly into HTTP instead of using TLS? So there, there was a, uh, a proposal to do that uh, called SHTTP, uh, where it was effectively message-based security uh, for HTTP. And there's a, I think there's an RFC for that out there. It didn't get any adoption. It has a lot of intrinsic security problems, uh, and I won't pretend to represent them. Uh, I'm, I'm not a security expert. I just 
play around a little bit. But uh, it, that was in, I want to say, the late 90s that that was proposed. But, but Netscape, um, you know, which eventually became Firefox, uh, proposed HTTPS uh, and proposed SSL, which became TLS. And that got a lot more traction. It was much more easy to layer that out and put the encryption at a layer between the application semantics and the transport. Uh, and, and of course, you can not just use that for HTTP, you can use it for IMAP or for POP or for any other protocol that, that uses TCP. And so it's much more useful. And so HTTPS is just, just using that uh, uh, for security. Uh, one of the interesting things is that you know, there was a debate about whether you, you just upgrade a normal HTTP connection to HTTPS uh, without changing the URL, so not putting the S on the HTTP, or whether you use the S as a signifier that this is a secure connection. And a lot of folks felt that just doing a natural upgrade was the way to go. But then you have uh, different kinds of downgrade attacks that can happen. So uh, by giving it a different namespace, then you can you know, have a, a, a definite indication whether or not it's secure. Uh, because you have to think about not only is this HTML loaded securely, but what about the JavaScript, what about the images, so forth and so on. Um, and so uh, yeah, HTTPS has been around for a long time. It wasn't terribly controversial. It also wasn't very much used except for things like banking and maybe e-commerce for a long time. And then in 2013, uh, we all discovered some things that made us think differently about it. Uh, Edward Snowden has revelations uh, in June. Uh, we had an IETF meeting in July in Berlin, and it changed the nature of that meeting pretty fundamentally. There were a lot of very hurried hallway conversations and changed agendas and things where we talked about, well, what does this mean for the internet? It, it became quickly apparent that the HTTPS was one of the major ways that, that you know, uh, we could address this pervasive monitoring threat. So they, they put together a workshop to identify that, yes, it's a threat to have governments or anybody else kind of watching what happens in, uh, across the internet, and we need to address that. And one way we can do that is by increasing the use of HTTPS. Um, and so, you know, uh, lots of different efforts happened. Google and other clients said, okay, how can we encourage people to use more HTTPS in their sites by changing the search indexing or changing the user experience? You know, lots of different folks tried to identify what made it harder to adopt HTTPS, and that spawned efforts like Let's Encrypt, where it, was, it made it free and, and much more easy to get a certificate for your web server and to renew it on a, on a constant basis. Um, and, and there was a lot of effort put in as well in, in the ITF and in the W3C about the details of how content was secured so that you could transition an HTTP site to an HTTPS site more, more easily. Uh, mixed content is a really nasty problem on the web where, you know, if I have an HTTPS site, but one of the resources is still on HTTP, then I get this mixed content warning or it doesn't load. Um, and so a lot of folks had difficulty transitioning their site to HTTPS, especially if they had ads or they had legacy content or archive content or whatever, or, or you know, third-party references that were still on HTTP. And so we needed to give them tools to do that. Uh, there were a bunch of specifications, mostly in the W3C, uh, to help them do that. Um, there were also things like uh, HSTS, which which effectively pins your site as being upgraded to HTTPS uh, to against some kinds of downgrade attacks and other things. So it, it, it's complex, and it was definitely a, a lot of effort. It's a lot easier, I think, now to secure sites than it was even three or four years ago. Um, 
And now it's uncontroversial. It's most people expect most sites to be HTTPS, and that's that's by far the data we see uh, from the browsers. I I haven't looked in a while, but I think the Netscape figures, sorry, the Mozilla figures are that uh, it's got to be north of eighty, maybe ninety percent of requests are HTTPS. Uh, now, if you look at it from the standpoint of how many sites are HTTPS, it's a lower number, but of course, you know. That, that's the long tail of sites that you're seeing there. So, so what would you do differently looking back about the standards that you've helped develop? So many, so many things. Um, <laughs> um, gee, that's a good question. I, I, there are always lessons learned. I think uh, this whole thing has been a learning experience for me, and I would definitely behave and make proposals in a different way uh, 15 years ago than I do now. Hopefully in another 15 years, if I'm still doing this, which maybe I shouldn't be, but if, if I am, I'll, I'll behave again in a different way. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. I, I argued for a long time in the 2000s against uh, encrypting everything. Uh, that that you know, because I come from a background of intermediation. I'm, I'm my expertise is. is strongest in web caching and web caching and intermediation go in hand in hand and to, to, to cache something you need access to it. And so, you know, I, I argued against HTTPS everywhere for a little while. Uh, I didn't realize that, that there are larger concerns than just technical uh, uh, abilities uh, at the time. And I think that's one of the biggest things that's changed is that for me, that there are bigger concerns on the internet than just being able to get bits from A to B or to get, you know, good code written. Um, that the, the internet's become important enough that we need to think about how it's used and, and what, what uses we're serving and, and enabling with it. Um, and that's, a, I, I spend a, more of my time thinking about that these days than I did back then. Yeah, privacy is becoming a big deal, and not just privacy, but you know, just the security of everything is becoming a much larger deal. Uh, we didn't live in that world when the internet was first created. Uh, in fact, I, I remember I was working on a piece of software when I was a, when I was much younger, and it slowly dawned on me that this piece of software I was working on was a huge privacy concern, and uh, I actually abandoned it. Because, much to the chagrin of my manager at the time because he really wanted me to finish it and I was like no I think I'm starting to see a problem here but that was like 20 years ago and so you know it's kind of strange that it's grown to this point now well that's a good place to wrap so Donald where can people reach you if they want to find me on Twitter at me not your shark alright and GitHub of course yeah that's true just, just look for the turtle. And Mark, are you? Do you have any blogs or anything, or places where you publish the work that you're doing right now? I, I blog irregularly on my website, just mnot.net, and I'm on Twitter, uh, talking about lots of things on mnot. Yeah. And I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech and through history of networking and the hedge and I don't know, wherever I happen to show up. Who knows where I'm going to be next. And thanks for joining us for this episode of the history of networking. Subscribe to the history of networking on your favorite podcast service. Or follow along at rule11.tech.